You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese and Joe. Very excited for our guest today, another Wall Street Journal member joining us on the show. In 2016, he was named the Sports Columnist of the Year by the Society of Professional Journalists, and he was a finalist for the Thurber Prize for American Humor. Very talented writer who was able to do multiple backgrounds when it comes to his articles. Absolutely. Uh, mentally talented writer. Uh, and he also published uh, a book, uh, Little Victories of Sports Writers Notes on Winning It Life a couple of years ago. So um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce him, Jason Gay. Jason, welcome to the show. Uh, nice to see you. Thank you for doing with this with us. I hope you enjoyed that warm introduction. How are you doing today? I appreciate it. And that was a warm introduction. I'm grateful. How are you all today? We are doing well. Spring's here. So it's time for some cheer. The dark Fantastic. winter is over, and uh, looking forward to looking forward to bigger and better things. Uh, and really excited to have you on here, and we really enjoy your work. What made you, back in the day, whether it was high school, college, whatever, want to pursue a career in journalism? You know, it was I got exposed to working on my high school newspaper. You know, and and I was not a terribly uh, um, successful student. Um, you know, I liked reading. I liked reading the newspaper, especially I had a paper out back in the day. I grew up in the Boston area and, and read the Boston Globe pretty religiously. I delivered the newspaper. At the time, that was, and still is, a very, very significant sports section. Had a lot of great people come through there, you know, ranging from whether it's Bob Ryan, Dan Shaughnessy, Lee Montville, Jackie McMullen, and on and on. And, and uh, that was influential. And then having that exposure in high school to working at a school news uh, school newspaper, I just I loved it. I loved the whole experience of it. I love the adrenaline of it, you know, the consequence of it. And it just felt like something for me. So when I got out of school, it was something that I was curious about. I actually started in advertising, though. Wow. I did not start as a newspaper reporter. I wasn't uh, I wasn't anybody's strongest candidate for that. So I, I started in sales um, and I wasn't terribly good at that either. Um, in fact, it was probably because I was such a lousy salesperson that the newspaper gave me a shot at you know covering school sports. I literally started by covering little league games, then high school football and stuff like that. But I needed all that experience. You know, I needed to sort of be built from the ground up and have every sort of um, you know, learning experience along the way. But uh, I feel, you know, very fortunate to have had those opportunities and good editors along the way. You started in high school and then you moved on to the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to ask you about your experience there. Uh, what drove your decision to choose there to go to school? Uh, and what did you do on campus in terms of internships and uh, staying active, um, continuing to pursue that? Sure. Uh, my decision to go to the University of Wisconsin was driven by the fact that it was the only school that I got into. <laughs> absolute truth. Uh, I think I went uh, one for 10 or something like that uh, in terms of applications. Some of these schools I applied to, I had no business applying to in retrospect, but uh, very fortunate to get into Wisconsin, which is an outstanding school. Very, very great about going there. Um, I wasn't uh, a terribly motivated student when I got there. I didn't do summer internships. I had regular summer jobs and things like that. I didn't uh, really get 
into the sort of professional realm of, of newspapers until I was out of school. I did a little bit, and I mean like a handful of stories for the school newspapers when I was there, but they do have really good journalism program. They do have great newspaper tradition. A lot of people have come out of there, gone and done spectacular things. And I wish I could sort of consider myself part of that group, but I, I, I frankly wasn't. So how did you ultimately get your first actual writing job? What was the process like for you to get that? You know, again, it was, you know, I was working at this newspaper and I, uh, <laughs> it was going door to door selling advertising for this place uh, for more than a year. And it was not, you know, a long-term future for me and not pro terribly prosperous for the newspaper. And I, I can't remember exactly how I made the connection, but had some conversation with an editor there about, you know, high school newspaper stuff, a little bit of college newspaper stuff, sports, yada, yada. And they said, well, why don't you start covering stuff here and there? And so it truly, I mean, I'm, it sounds like I'm making this up, but I, I think the first thing I ever wrote about was a little league baseball tournament. And then a little bit of high school sports from there and sort of built from there and, you know, doing the basics, like, you know, going to the games, calling up the players at night to ask them, you know, reaction about what happened, uh, parents, coaches, parents getting mad if you misspell a kid's name, which they should do. But like, you know, it was like small town newspaper stuff, which was really, really useful for me. So you're in the small town for a bit. Eventually, years later, you go big. One of the biggest publications there is the Wall Street Journal. How did that opportunity come about for you? You know, the, the Wall Street Journal obviously is a paper that has this you know, pretty long and rich tradition of covering the financial world, business world. People think of it primarily as a business publication, which it is, and, and, and obviously has a great many incredible people who write for it. They, I guess now going back a little bit more than 10 years ago, were looking to expand the coverage base. Like they felt, okay, you know, we've gotten all the business people we can get here. Let's try to widen the audience a little bit here. So we're going to start doing some other things. We'll start covering arts more aggressively. We'll start covering Real estate, we'll start covering uh, sports was another sort of area which the journal didn't have a, you know, they did some sports writing and some great stuff over the years, but they didn't have a dedicated staff of people covering sports. So I was part of that shift. Um, and thankfully it's worked out. You know, we had really good editors along the way and publishers who believed in it. And, you know, here we are, but I was, you know, a candidate for this job. It was as simple as that. A friend of mine had been approached about, uh, applying to become the sports columnist. And he said, well, I'm not very interested, but you should call this other guy, Jason. <laughs> and, uh, and I was interested. He was right. I was interested. And I did this fun thing, which I don't know if it was fun, but it was sort of stressful. But, you know, they, they, they make you do these sort of, uh, not fake isn't the right word, but sort of audition columns where, you know, you'll be, there'll be sporting events happening on a Saturday and Sunday. And they say, okay, buddy, try to write about this file this by you know six o'clock or whatever the deadline was just as a way of kind of testing your ability to write on deadline your news metabolism and stuff like that so it worked out pretty good and I joined part-time I think for the first year or so and then became full-time shortly after that. For you with, with your time so far with, with the company what has been the most memorable events you've gotten to go cover? 
I mean, almost everything has been memorable in the respect that I hadn't been to almost any of it. I'd never been to a Super Bowl or to a, an Olympic Games or to a major tennis tournament or a golf tournament like the Masters or any of that. I'd never been to any of these places. And so it was an enormous privilege to be able to go and just you know breathe the air at these places and, and, and cover them. Um, I would say most memorable, I mean, the Olympics, you know, they have their problems for sure. Um, you know, they are rife with all kinds of institutional issues, um, and especially in the last couple of years, but uh, there, uh, there's nothing like it. You know, you have a gathering of the world together to compete, and, you know, I like to say that, like, and in Olympic games, one of the fascinating things you get to experience is every day you kind of see the best day of somebody's life. You know, most of these athletes who are at these games, they're not coming with big reputations or fame or money or anything like that. They've been sort of quietly training and 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 solitude and, and and anonymity for almost all of their lives. And so they get this one opportunity to showcase that the stakes could not be more consequential. And that's just incredible drama. Yeah, I think even though the last couple of years uh, has kind of put a, a dent in the whole process of what the Olympics do, I think there's still a pageantry and a mystique to it. And I think uh, for a lot of people uh, who've had the ability to do that and to see it live and to cover it, um, that doesn't go over their heads. So uh, great yeah. answers. Uh, Super Bowl is great. Uh, any other events you've never done before you would like to do in the future? Maybe like the Final Four or uh, College Football Championship game. Sure. No, I've, those I've done just came from this year's Final Four, which was an incredibly memorable one, the men's Final Four with the Duke-North Carolina game, which was incredible. Um, you know, it's more at this point, like kind of places, you know, I'd love to, you know, see a game at this location or that location. I've, it's been a long time since I got back to Lambeau Field. It's been a while too long. I would love to go see the Australian Tennis Open one of these days, the British Open in golf. That would be great. I've never seen Paris-Roubaix, the bike race. But listen, I sound really spoiled right now, and I am spoiled. I mean, it's been a great, great job in terms of being able to go places and see the kinds of things that I want to see. So if they, you know, put the brakes on me permanently right now, I, I, I couldn't complain because I've had a good. You can sound spoiled, but so long as you're grateful, it's all that matters and you sound grateful. So uh, yeah, yeah. Again, we're grateful to have you on. Uh, we're going to move on here. We're going to talk about your book here. So uh, I believe it came out 2015, Little Victories. Uh, essentially, it's just a, a collection uh, of a lot of stories uh, directly pertaining to you. So uh, stuff that you've done, covered, uh, your life behind the scenes, your family life, uh, being a parent and all that. Uh, so talk to us about the process between writing an article uh, and writing a book. Now, obviously, uh, and writing is writing, and we've asked this question to other people before, uh, but there are certain things that went into the book, uh, maybe channels that you had to go through that you wouldn't normally have to go through if you were writing an article and, and what other uh, primary differences, if any, do you think there are? Sure. I mean, metabolically, they're, they're, they're different. I mean, because with writing a newspaper story, usually, you know, there are some exceptions, but you're kind of doing this on short notice and it comes out into the world and people react to it. And that's all a pretty quick process. It can sometimes be, excuse me, a matter of hours for that to happen. With a book, obviously, it's a much different um, process gestationally. Um, you're writing, you're being edited, you're, you know, 
putting stuff in, throwing stuff out, you have the luxury of time, but it never, of course, feels like enough time. Uh, and you're trying to simultaneously, at least I was trying to simultaneously do this while I was continuing to write my column. I didn't take book leave. I'm currently working on another book right now. I'm not taking book leave for that too. I just, I like having the alternative brain of like writing my column while I'm doing the book just to give myself a little bit of, um, you know, uh, cross training to borrow a sports term. Um, and, you know, I, what I appreciated about the experience of it, other than just the privilege of being able to write a book in the first place was that, you know, it opens you up to an audience of readers that, you know, might not naturally be Wall Street Journal readers might not know the first darn thing about me, uh, or have any interest in it and are coming to this strictly because it's a book that either they got as a present or that was recommended by a friend. And, and it, it felt like a widening in a really pleasurable way to have that happen. Um, and, you know, it's not easy. I think, you know, I was lucky in that I was writing really for my own personal experience and memory. So I wasn't like doing some sort of like deep dive of research and fact checking and diving into library documents and things like that. There are much, much harder books to write than the book that I wrote, but it, 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 I, you know, I had that experience of like the first half of it, I felt this is not so hard. I don't know why anyone ever complains about writing the book. And then the last, you know, five miles are just like, please end this for me now. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> so I had all the emotions, guys. Do you plan on writing another book in the future? We had uh, Ian O'Connor on with us uh, recently. And obviously he's written a few. And when you finish one, uh, it takes some time and then you get the itch to write the other one. So in his case, uh, he's written about Jeter and he's written, written about uh, Bill Belichick, head coach of the New England Patriots. So uh, do you have any particular people in mind who uh, strikes you as somebody you would want to do a biography with for? Uh, do you have any other things that have happened in your life since then or experiences that you've had that would lead you to maybe want to write another one? Yeah, so I'm writing one now that is uh, a little bit of a um, sort of advance upon what I wrote before in terms of like it is personal stories and humor stories, a little bit of his, you know, recent history with, you know, obviously these past couple of years have been crazy for numerous reasons. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a humor book. It's not like trying to be terribly serious about the world we live in now. I think we have enough of that seriousness. That's an abundance, but yeah, I don't know if I'm suited to write the kinds of like sprawling biographies that someone like Ian is incredibly talented at. I read that Belichick book. It was incredible. And like, uh, being able to like live in the world of somebody else for a long period of time. I think I'm way too narcissistic. I need to live in my own world, you know, like the idea of like having to commit to somebody else. I, I admire anybody who can do that as well as he can. A good answer. It's a very candid answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you've also written uh, at other publications, including Vogue, uh, GQ, Rolling Stone, Outside. So is that a case where you were interested uh, in expanding at the time and writing for them or did their people or, or people on behalf of their companies uh, represent them and reach out to you because they liked and admired your work and, and thought your style would fit into something that they wanted published there? Well, I came from magazines to the journal. So I had worked in magazines for a couple of, a number of years before that. I had worked at Rolling Stone. Before that, I worked at GQ. Um, so it made some friends in that world. Um, in individual cases, they're all a little different, but in most instances, it was like 
we have this thing, we think you might be a good person, a match with the topic or the individual, you know, would you be interested? And I almost always am interested in it. It'd be fun to have those experiences. And, and uh, you know, the privilege of it is that you, they're coming to it knowing you, like knowing what I do or what I don't do. <laughs> Sometimes it's helpful too. Um, and so like, there's like no surprises. They're like, we read the way you write about these things and we want you to do that for this topic. So um, that usually is a pretty symmetrical fit, usually is a really good experience. And in all those instances that you mentioned, they were always really, really good experiences. I, I was very lucky to be able to have them. So for you, what's the biggest difference between writing your think slash humor pieces, like stories about waking up early versus late? Uh, and then against that, going against the sports comms, because it's two very different things. So I'm interested in your process, what you do going into each of those. It's going to sound a little weird, but the first one is a little harder than the second one. The sort of straight humor stuff that I do at the paper, um, which is a column that I write in the review section, um, I find more challenging because it's not really event driven. Like sports, we have it lucky. You know, there's a calendar of events, stuff is going to happen. So like you finish up the final four and then you turn the page and here comes the masters and here comes Tiger Woods. And then you turn the page after that and you have the beginning of baseball season. You turn the page after that, you have basketball, hockey playoffs. It just never stops. NFL draft. There's just this reliably uh, cha a channel of information or events that you can kind of react to. Humor columns aren't necessarily that way. You can definitely be topical, but um, it tends to be something that you have to kind of generate a little bit more of your own wake to get it going. And, and I find that harder for me. I'm sure it's not for every individual, but in my case, yeah, I think that's the difference. And then in terms of the actual execution of it, I do feel the responsibility is kind of the same in both, which is to entertain. You know, I'm not trying to like do anything terribly more complicated than that. You know, obviously I wanna inform people, hopefully I wanna maybe widen their perspective on something. And I certainly wanna be like fair to whatever subject matter I'm covering, but I think ultimately what I'm trying to do is give people a little bit of entertainment and a respite from what is a pretty serious news world that we live in right now. Absolutely. And you know, I think a lot of your humor pieces make people think. I know Joe, he's an incredibly late riser. This is very <laughs> early for him right now as we record this at 11 o'clock in the morning. So uh, I really, really enjoyed that, those type of pieces. For you though, when it comes to you know, events or sports, what would you say is the most enjoyable thing to write about? And then what event or sport would you say it's kind of difficult at times and you really, you really got to think a lot to get your creative juices flowing to write about it. That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I'd say like, you know, if I'm there, I'm probably pretty committed to the idea that I think it's interesting, you know, like we don't, you know, obviously every sports department has a budget and like, they're not just like sending people off willy nilly to see if they think something's worth writing about anymore. You're kind of like, you're already kind of pot committed by the time you sit right. down to, to, to watch the game. Um, but I think that like the thing that is uh, always the challenge within the moment is, you know, you have an expectation of what's going to happen. And so you can kind of start to develop in your head an idea of what you'll be writing, what a call might look like. 
But then real life intervenes, the actual game intervenes. There's a reason they play these things because it doesn't always go as planned. And oftentimes you'll find yourself in a situation where you, whether it's a Super Bowl or championship or a tennis final or whatever it is, where both parties have an opportunity to win. And that's the most exciting, buzziest stuff because A, the audience is really committed. They care like crazy. The athletes certainly are. And then you're getting all this adrenaline because you really don't know what the heck is going to happen, you know? And so I like that kind of environment the most where you have really no idea until the final buzzer or the final score, whatever it is to, to, to know what direction you're going to be taking something. That's the hardest part of it, I think, um, but also the most satisfying. You've been to many arenas and stadiums. So I need to ask you, which one, in your opinion, has the best press food selection? Oh, man. You know, they all feel the same to me. No disrespect to any of the individual places. And I'm sure there have been places that have had nice setups and stuff. But I actually really enjoy getting out of the press box and kind of walking around the corridors of the place and, and feeling what it's like to sit in the upper deck or the middle tier or the down below and like just kind of like getting the energy and the vibe of what it's like to be a fan actually watching this thing. The press box can feel, I mean, you know, they're great because they have, you know, all the kind of professional tools that you need, uh, not to mention, you know, great people all around you, but, uh, you know, it's not real life. <laughs> it's a little bit of a bubble. And so, you know, kind of getting your butt out and sitting in the, you know, I, I, when I started doing this job, one of the things that I asked if I could do is just buy a ticket every once in a while and go as a fan and go as a observer, like as a real ticket holder. And that was important to me because, I think it's easy to sort of get into this sort of like professional track where you're thinking that, you know, the, the conversation is between you and the athletes that you're covering when there's this whole other element, which might be the most important element of all, which is the audience itself. Um, I would say that one of the places, one of the main reader complaints that I've gotten over the years, and I think it's a very valid one, is that games have become increasingly unaffordable to people. Yeah. Um, when you take in, you know, tickets and secondary market prices and parking and food and, you know, heaven forbid you want to bring your children and the, our family, um, it can get extremely pricey. And there's a disconnect that's been created by many of these sports willfully because they have gone after the highest dollar in every possible scenario. And I think they're all kind of paying a price for that, candidly. Um, so having some sort of understanding of what that experience is, what you're getting, you know, like, like I don't know, you've probably had these experiences too where you're, you're choosing whether or not you're going to go to a sporting event you're looking at, especially if it's like a sellout thing and you're looking at StubHub or whatever it is. It's very rare that I look at those numbers and say, oh, that's totally worth it. You know, you're really <laughs> almost always it's some crazed act of love to want to spend the money that people spend to go to an event. Yeah, the, those service and convenience fees and StubHub absolutely kill me. I need to pay to use my printer. I mean, it just it just annoys me to no end all the time. Like, I can't take that. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you 100%. And um, you're not getting anything for that. It's just a charge for a charge's sake. You know, there's no actual justification for it. And, and, and all these, you know, 
teams have made their peace with these secondary brokers now. I mean, they they all are kind of in bed with them, if not very specifically, at least sort of you know tolerant of it. Um, and I don't like it at all. How do you feel about the PSL licenses that a lot of the football teams do? Hate it. I mean, you know, it's just a cash grab. It's terrible. I mean, you know, why I, I, I unless I was an owner, I can't imagine answering that question in the affirmative. Like, you know, it, yeah, terrible. Yeah, not definitely, definitely not worth it. That's and also you create this culture, you know, when you're doing PSL charging and when you're charging the volume, the, the prices that you charge for season tickets, well, you're create you're incentivizing season ticket holders to try to make some of that money back by selling off their tickets. So every season ticket holder I know like gets their schedule and they look through it and go, want to go, don't want to go, don't want to go, want to go, don't want to go, want to go. And whatever they don't want to go or give to a friend, they're selling. Um, and then, so that you have all these kind of weird environments now where, you know, arenas are half full with opposing fans from, you know, 14 states away, you know, like that, that, you know, it's changed the dynamic of a lot of home arenas. Uh, home field advantage isn't what it once was, I think, just generally speaking. It's not to say there aren't some hostile environments to play in and so on, but you're going to find your, it doesn't matter what team you support. If you go to an arena in 2022, you will find a tribe of your fellow fans, no matter where you are in the world, because a lot of just the access that people have to these tickets and the price that, you know, a good number of fans are willing to pay uh, creates a demand. Yeah, especially when, you know, football, when your team's out of it by November, everyone's looking <laughs> to sell us tickets and anybody nearby is going to infiltrate the stadium. They're, they're out by November. It's getting cold. And then I think for football, an existential issue is that it's a great sport on TV. Yes. You know, you're sitting there with your nice new HD TV, you know, TVs are getting nicer than ever. And you're sitting there with your widescreen and it's, you know, 13 degrees outside. And you're like, what's not to like about this? This is great. Why would I actually bundle up and spend hundreds of, for the price of this television, Right. you know, I could go to this game or I could go to, you know, buy this television and avoid having to spend these hundreds of dollars all the time. Certainly. That's a major, it's a major. I mean, I was shocked. I took my son to an NFL game this season um, and it's always incredible to sort of watch it through the eyes of someone who's never been before, especially someone who's younger. And there are a lot of standing around, man. There's a lot of standing around in football, you know, between the breaks and play, the television timeouts and so on. Like, it's not nonstop action. It's quite the contrary. Yeah. And it's, depending on where you sit, I mean, there's really yeah. not many good locations to see the game in a football yeah. state. It's very yep. difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Something, uh, something that's tough there. All right, Jason, last question from me here. I want to know what in your career has been your you know on right moment? What we mean by that is a time where you wanted to do something, you asked somebody for advice, they say, hey, Jason, I don't think you should do that. That sounds like a bad idea. And you say, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. And ultimately, you will see why it is that I'm right. <laughs> That sounds like the third act of a movie, right? That, you know, the <laughs> is supposed to run into interference and then they persevere and like, you know, I, nothing comes immediately to mind. I mean, there've definitely been times when I've had disagreements about coverage ideas, but usually it's the opposite. I'm the one saying like, that's a bad idea. We shouldn't do that. Um, gosh, I mean, 
I don't know. I mean, oftentimes it's conversations about like timing and things like that. And, you know, without specifically naming one, there have been, I think, numerous instances when I've gotten advice about whether it's an individual athlete coming up or a team coming up that is worth noting or development, a trend in sports that's worth noting and sort of feeling that we got that out into the world faster than anybody and feeling good about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the newsroom that I work in and the people that I work for are pretty cooperative and it's a pretty dynamic, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, collegial workplace. And, and, and so there's not a lot of like, you know, you know, we're doing it my way, you know, <laughs> my way or the highway. I wouldn't have last, lasted this long if it was, everything was combative. I just don't have the, you know, temperament for that. So, I understand exactly what you're asking, but you know, something will come to mind and I'll let you know. Sounds good. Next time we have you on, we'll get you, we'll get your answer. Ready to go for that one. Yep. Sounds good to us. Uh, last question from me, Jason, and then we'll finally let you go. Um, if you were pitching uh, a column idea today to the wall street journal, and you had to choose uh, one person out there in the sports world, uh, and it could be related to somebody in business, could be an owner, somebody in the front office executive position, or anybody in general. Uh, what column would you be pitching to your editors? Well, we're talking on April 7th, Thursday. So Eldrick Tiger Woods has just teed off in the Masters after a, what, 13-month layoff after a really horrific car accident that he had um, in early 2021. So that is the locus of the entire sports world so it would be kind of professional negligence if my calm suggestion was anything but tire but for now however however um if i had to choose something else you know we also have baseball opening day happening today uh a lot of the games got rained out but there are a bunch happening and like baseball's at a very interesting point you know i think as an institution because obviously again it's an institution it's it's baseball However, it faces all kinds of threats from other sports, from other types of entertainment. It is a game that is um, openly admitting that it has kind of a boredom problem and a going on too long problem. Uh, it was on the verge of shutting down for the entire season. We've forgotten it by now, but there was a three-year, I mean, three-month uh, lockout by the owners and the players early this season. So it was a little messy. Um, and so that's interesting tension. I know with our readers, they do care about sort of these broader issues of the health of individual sports. Most of them grew up at a time when baseball was a much more um, significant sport and the broader, you know, national conscious than it is now. So they know when things were good. Um, yeah, there's a lot to bite there too. But I, I, I would have to say if I didn't come with a tiger story, you know, I'd probably be in a little bit of trouble. Oh, of course, of course, understood. Uh, you beat the uh, deadline here with us. There's, a, so. you know, there's another little story that just one other. Uh -oh. Yeah, go ahead. It's a small thing, but a guy named uh, Patrick Moritoglu, who is a uh, French tennis coach who for the last decade or so has coached Serena Williams, just announced today that he's going to be coaching Simona Halep, who is the Belgian tennis player who's very, very good. Uh, top 10 player in the world. Um, and that really signals something interesting about what it means for Serena Williams, who we know is now in her 40s. Um, it's been a while since she won a major tournament. Um, so now her coach is going to coach somebody else. 
I don't know what it signals. Might it might be minor. It might be, you know, she's coming back in six months and this will all work out, or she's coming back in two months and this will all work out. But there's an interesting question mark about, you know, somebody who's kind of inarguably the most significant women's athlete in America, if not the world. So that's a good story too. That is a very good story. Uh, Jason, thank you again for doing this us again. You Thanks, really, really appreciate it. I really it. appreciate your time and, uh, and let's do this again sometime. Yep. If there's anything else you would like to share or promote, go on, go right ahead. Floor is all yours. <laughs> um, no, listen, I, I appreciate the opportunity. And if anybody, you know, is, is, is curious about the Wall Street Journal, you know, we're at wsj.com slash sports. And I think we have a pretty interesting sports page. It is not the kind of place that you go to get your fantasy football team breakdown, but we have a little bit of a, we have a, a small, but, you know, clever staff of people who write really interesting things that I don't think you'll find in any other sports page. So uh, if you're curious about what it is that we do, I highly encourage a visit to that wsj.com slash sports. Yeah, your colleague Jared is certainly a diamond in the rough and he does some great work as well. Oh, I love it. Diamond in the rough. He's wonderful. He, he, he's great. Had him on recently too. He was excellent. So yeah, it's got to be great. something in the water in that building, yeah. huh? Do you have screaming babies in the background? <laughs> no, he, he was locked in a room. Yeah, just turn one. But yeah, Jared's, Jared's as good as it gets, so I'm glad you had a chance to talk yeah, to him. Great stuff there. Well, You Know I'm Right is the podcast that uncovers the origin stories of some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment. And that's what we got today out of Jason. Jason, thank you so much for, our time, for your time. So that's going to do it here for this episode of You Know I'm Right for our very special guest, Jason Gay, my co-host, Joe Calabrese. I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right.